traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-32 The Fourth Caesar To Romans looking in from the outside, it must have seemed like a new golden age. Or maybe just the continuation of the Antonine Golden Age. If you skipped over the civil wars of the 190s and the fact that Severus wasn't really an Antonine. But regardless, one of the greatest emperors in Roman history was returning to the capital to celebrate the marriage of his son. And if that wasn't epic enough, Severus even threw in a topper. Every single Roman citizen would be given ten gold coins, one for each year of his golden reign. The generous gesture was matched by the lavish wedding feast, and, in particular, the enormous dowry paid to the emperor by the bride's father. But that part had a certain logic. Gaius Fulvius Plautianus wouldn't have a denarius to his name if not for Severus's steady and incredibly indulgent patronage. So it was really a repayment more than a payment. And since the prefect was marrying his daughter Plautilla to the future emperor Caracalla, any investment made now was likely to pay huge dividends down the line. If the scene looked fairy tale on the surface, you didn't need to scratch too hard to see the flaws beneath. Severus's bromance with Plautianus had only grown stronger with age, but the prefect's enemies had multiplied even faster. There were obviously those all across the empire he'd used his position to corrupt, extort, abuse, or destroy, but there were plenty even within the royal family. The most restrained was Severus's fiercely loyal older brother, Geta, who recognized the prefect's nature but continued to hold his tongue. In contrast, 14-year-old Caracalla was far less reserved and openly seethed with hatred for both his new wife and her father. It was a hatred shared, if more subtly displayed, by his mother, Severus's wife, the 32-year-old empress, Julia Domna. 
Julia's bitterness was at least partly fueled by jealousy over the two men's closeness. Severus had even told a friend, I love the man so much that I pray to die before he does. There was also wariness of Plautianus's ambition, that he might try to take the throne in place of her son Caracalla. But mostly, according to Dio, Julia hated the prefect because he treated her in an outrageous way, for he detested her cordially and was always abusing her violently to Severus. The fact that Severus let this behavior slide goes a long way toward explaining both Caracalla's growing resentment toward his father and Julia Domna's decision to remove herself from the situation and, according to Dio, study philosophy and pass her days in the company of learned men. This is the origin of Julia's salon of major philosophical and literary figures a group that would remain a fixture for the remainder of her life. And, well, if rumors of Julia's infidelity are true, the behavior may have also begun during her isolation from Severus. After years spent in the East, Caracalla's wedding in 202 gave Julia the chance to reconnect with her sister's family in Rome. Julia Mesa, now 37, still lived in the capital with her husband Avitus Alexianus. Under Severus, Alexianus had been elevated to senator, legate, consul, and even proconsul of Raetia, modern Switzerland. While posted there, he dedicated an altar to the Emocene sun god Elagabal, the farthest one ever planted in the West. But after all these postings, he'd pulled back from public life, likely out of fear of Plautianus. There were also Julia Mesa's two 22-year-old daughters, Julia Avita Mamaya and Julia Soamius Bassiana. While Bassiana was still married to the Syrian nobleman Sextus Varius Marcellus, and in fact was pregnant with his child, Mamaya's first husband had died and she'd recently remarried to another Syrian nobleman named Gessius Marcianus. Severus never seemed too comfortable in the capital, and after massive public spectacles marking his first decade in power, he decided to take a family trip to his old hometown of Lepsis Magna. And this time, family included Caracalla's new wife, Plautilla, and, of course, Severus's BFF and fellow Lepsis native, Plautianus. Oh, and by the way, since Caracalla was technically co-Augustus, that meant Plautilla was now Augusta, or Empress, giving her equal status with her mother-in-law, Julia Domna. How could this not be a fun trip? Like I discussed way back in episode 35 of the original series, Lepsis Magna had been founded by Carthage in the 5th century BC to keep Greeks from planting colonies too far west. Over the centuries that followed, the city's relative isolation allowed it to avoid most of the intrigues that plagued Carthage, Numidia, and Egypt, and develop into a fairly prosperous port. Along with Punic language, gods, and family names, Lepsis had even kept its traditional Punic governing structure for decades after its annexation by Rome. 
After Severus took power back in 193, the leading citizens of Lepsis had occupied every building, street corner, and plaza with statues of the royal family. Not only Severus, Julia, Caracalla, and Geta, but also Severus's father, mother, grandfather, and even his first wife, Pacia Marciana. And yes, lest we forget, plenty of statues of the Praetorian prefect Plautianus and his daughter, the Empress Plautilla. And for once, these local statues of Plautianus actually got Severus a little peeved. Severus usually gave Plautianus an insanely long leash, with copious reams of slack. The emperor basically ignored it when Plautianus had his fellow prefect quietly killed and stripped his subordinates of their powers, so his role as head praetorian would never be challenged. Severus even let it slide when he'd once called for a legal case to be presented, and the aide said he'd need to check with Plautianus first. Even more outrageous, during their recent trip from Syria to Rome, Plautianus had fallen ill. And when Severus had gone to visit him, Plautianus's bodyguards had forced the emperor to shed his escort and enter the chamber alone. Just sit with that for a minute. I doubt even Sejanus would have pulled that kind of stunt. And where Sejanus had merely been the partner of my labors, Plautianus was sometimes referred to as the fourth Caesar, equal or even superior to Severus, Caracalla, and Geta. All of which was apparently fine with Severus, at least most of the time. But here in his hometown, Severus felt the need to reinforce just who was the emperor and who was the subordinate. Coming across a few too many statues of Plautianus for his liking, Severus ordered some of them to be melted down. The act was completed and the offense was forgotten. Unfortunately, as Dio reports, as a consequence, a rumor penetrated the cities that the prefect had been overthrown and perished. So some of them demolished his images, an act for which they were later punished. On a happier note, Severus took advantage of his visit to give Lepsis Magna a major upgrade. The city's Hadrianic baths had recently been restored by Commodus, and the citizens of Lepsis had recently adorned a four-way arch, or tetrapylon, at one of the city's major crossroads. The so-called Severan Arch now depicted the royal family in triumph, along with the siege of an eastern city, possibly Hatra, during the recent Parthian War. As historian Warwick Ball points out, the tetrapylon form, as well as the frontal depiction of the characters and general artistic style, display a clear Syrian influence, and are similar to reliefs from Palmyra and Duryaropos. To these existing monuments, Severus commissioned the addition of a new forum, a basilica, a nymphaeum, a temple to his family, and a colonnaded avenue running from the baths to the harbor, which was also greatly expanded. 
According to Ball, many new features were also Syrian in character, with parallels to Apamea, Jerash, Damascus, Palmyra, and even Heliopolis, modern Baalbek. The materials used were the finest available, including marble from Anatolia and pink granite from Egypt, and money was clearly no object. No Roman emperor before or since ever spent anywhere near as much to embellish a provincial hometown. The main question appears to be how much money came from Severus and the imperial treasury, and how much came from the temple of Ela Gabal, channeled through the cultured preferences of Julia Domna. Severus clearly took the lead in one regard— namely launching a campaign against the Garamantes. To be honest, the situation on the African frontier hadn't changed all that much since the days of Juba II and Tacfarinas. Well, it had in one way. Perseverus's penchant for reorganizing Roman territories, the province of Numidia had recently been recreated in its old location between Roman Africa and the two Mauritanias. But all along the Roman line of control, desert tribes still rose in revolt, fewer in number than the tribes along the Danube, but also with fewer legionaries to confront them. Whether prompted by high levels of unrest, excessive vigilance, or a desire to expand Rome's frontiers, Severus declared war on the Garamantes in the spring of 203. According to Aurelius Victor, the campaign was successful, and Severus freed Tripolitania from fear of attack by crushing the most warlike tribes. With his hometown now refurbished and secure, Severus decided to end his sojourn and return with his family to the capital. Rome welcomed him back with a victory arch to rival the one in Lepsis. The massive arch of Severus and Caracalla was the first major addition to the Roman Forum in 80 years, and stood diagonally across from the Arch of Augustus. Like at Lepsis, the subject matter was the recent Parthian War, and the conquest of two new provinces for the empire. The following year, 204, brought more echoes of Augustus, as Severus presided over the secular games. The games, an elaborate series of spectacles, ceremonies, and celebrations, were supposed to take place every 110 years, and had been revived by Augustus in 17 BC. Like Livia under Augustus, Julia Domna led a body of 109 Roman matrons attending a sacred banquet. While most were the wives of senators, the remainder were led by Domna's niece, Julia Soamius Bassiana. And, by the way, Bassiana had recently given birth to a young son, named Varius Avidus Bassianus, who'd later be known as the Emperor Elagabalus. 204 also saw a state visit from the king of the smooth talkers, Abgar VIII of Edessa. In 201 AD, Edessa had been devastated by a major flood, but like Severus with Lepsis Magna, Abgar decided to use the occasion to remake Edessa in his own image. A few monuments still visible in the city today, 
two pillars and the fishpool of Abraham are likely products of Abgar's reconstruction. What else was new with Abgar? Well, he's very glad you asked, because Abgar recently converted to Christianity. And even though he only controlled Edessa and its immediate surroundings, the move technically made Edessa the world's first Christian kingdom. Either way, Abgar's reception was the most lavish held in Rome since Nero welcomed Tiridates back in 66 AD. The same year also marked an important death in the family. Publius Septimius Geta, the older brother of Septimius Severus, had once pursued a career that had rivaled his brothers. But after 193 and Severus's bid for ultimate power, Gedid found himself relegated to the sidelines. Though given the important governorship of Dacia, Geta was kept at arm's length during the civil wars that had secured the throne for his brother. And Severus had been clear from the outset that there was no place for Geta in the line of succession. In fact, as historian Anthony Burley points out, though Gedid shared the consulship with Plautianus in 203 and even accompanied the royal family to Lepsis Magna, the inscription from his statue in the city doesn't even mention his relationship to Severus. Chalk it up to estrangement, mistrust, or just complicated brother stuff. It took Geta's imminent death to make Severus lower his defenses. With nothing to lose, Geta told his younger brother everything he knew about Plautianus's corruption and ambition, and advised Severus not to trust the prefect. And surprisingly, Severus listened. According to Dio, after Geta's death, Severus erected a statue of his brother in the Roman Forum and stripped Plautianus of most of his power. At the same time, the now 16-year-old co-emperor Caracalla was still refusing to sleep or eat with Plautilla, and constantly telling her that the moment Severus died, his first act as emperor would be to kill her and her father. So, you know, good night, honey. Plautianus could feel the walls closing in, and in early 205, one of two things happened. If you believe Herodian, Plautianus hatched a desperate plan to kill Severus and Caracalla. If you believe Dio, Caracalla hatched a plan to frame Plautianus as an imperial assassin. Either way, a suspicious letter was either discovered or manufactured, and the prefect was summoned to Severus's presence. In a nice bit of payback for the incident in Anatolia, this time it was Plautianus who was forced to shed his bodyguard and enter the chamber alone. In Dio's telling, Severus kept an even tone and just asked Plautianus, you know, why do you want to kill us? Plautianus had just started defending himself when Caracalla rushed up, disarmed him, and hit him across the face. When Severus ordered his son to be restrained, Caracalla shouted his own order for one of his attendants to strike Plautianus down, which he did. And just like that, the prefect's reign was over.
Except for one interesting tidbit. Someone yanked out a few of Plautianus's beard hairs, took them to a nearby chamber where Julia Domna and Plautilla were sitting, and announced, Behold your Plautianus. Was the guy just a jerk, or was he one of Caracalla's minions, or, more interestingly, was he bringing proof to Julia Domna that the deed had been accomplished? As historian Barbara Levick speculates, forging a note convincing enough to implicate Plautianus might have presented a challenge for a 16-year-old boy, but maybe not so much for a 34-year-old empress especially one determined to protect her family against a man she clearly despised and a daughter-in-law who fancied herself an equal. Maybe Juliet even offered to distract Plautilla while the deed was accomplished, or just wanted to see her face when the proof arrived. Who knows, the line between a Julia Domna and a Cersei Lannister could be very, very thin. While it's fun to speculate, there's no smoking gun, and Severus, for his part, blamed himself for everything. He'd been too generous, too loving, and too free in giving honors to his friend, who'd understandably been corrupted by the excess. In the aftermath, Caracalla and Plautilla were quickly divorced, and she was exiled to an island where he'd eventually have her killed. And, another spoiler, Caracal had never remarry, meaning Julia Domna remained the sole Augusta for the rest of her life. Now, in case I've given you the impression that Caracalla was a dangerous psychopath, well, that's basically correct. The sources all agree that both Caracalla and his brother Geta spent their teenage years going from bad to much, much worse. Cassius Dio gives a pretty good synopsis. They outraged women, abused boys, embezzled monies, and made friends of gladiators and charioteers, emulating each other in the similarity of their deeds and full of strife in their respective rivalries. If one attached himself to any cause, the other would be sure to choose the opposite side. If there was any check on their behavior, it had been Plautianus, and now Plautianus was dead. Severus did what he could to rein them in, but like with Plautianus, he could never really bring himself to punish them. Instead, he tried to convince the boys that as long as they got along, they'd co-inherit the richest and most secure empire in Roman history. But, according to Herodian, the youths paid absolutely no attention to him. They rebelled and spent their time in pursuits even more reprehensible. To Caracalla in particular, Severus was the man who'd forced him to marry against his will and backed his best friend over their mother. How could anything he said have any value? By 208 AD, Septimius Severus was a man past his prime. He was 63 years old and, according to Herodian, constantly racked by disease. From his royal estates just outside Rome, Severus tended to imperial business, 
presided over legal cases, and oversaw refurbishments to the capital. He put his stamp on the Temple of Peace, the Pantheon, and the Circus Maximus. He also erected the Septizodium, a large building housing statues of the seven planetary gods. Severus himself stood in for the sun, with his statue facing south toward Lepsis Magna. Despite his many achievements, Severus had frequent bouts of melancholy, and was quoted as saying, Everything have I been, and nothing have I gained. In short, he learned that conquering an empire was far more enjoyable than governing it. Which is why, the moment he learned that Britannia was in revolt, Severus saw it as the solution to all his problems. The chance to lead legionaries into battle once again, and instill some camp discipline in his sons? Done and done. Even though his horoscope indicated he'd likely never return. Caracalla and Geta, unsurprisingly, detested the idea. And, as a city kid who got dragged camping, I totally understand. It's unknown what Julia Domna might have thought. Actually, her whole relationship with Severus at this stage is a bit of a black box. Did the death of Plautianus allow them to reconnect, or did her possible role in the murder push them even further apart? It's unclear, but either way, the prefect's death allowed her family to come back in from the cold. At least three of Julia's relatives were invited to join the expedition. The first was Aemilius Papinianus, who'd just been named as one of two new prefects of the Praetorian Guard. Unusually for a prefect, Papinianus of Emesa was a lawyer, not a soldier. As a matter of fact, he was one of the greatest legal minds of the Roman world. Along with his younger colleague, Ulpianus of Tyre, Papinianus had distilled an enormous body of Roman law into a more rational, streamlined system, one that had later be codified by the Christian emperor Justinian. The second relative to join the trip was Julia's brother-in-law, Avitus Alexianus who assumed the role of Comus, or trusted companion, to the emperor. The third was Sextus Varius Marcellus, the husband of Julius Soemius Bassiana, who'd soon be promoted to procurator of Britannia. And, by the way, Julia Domna's other niece, Julia Avita Mamaya, had just given birth to her first child with her new husband Gessius Marcianus. The boy was named Marcus Julius Gessius Bassianus Alexianus, though he'd become much better known as the Emperor Severus Alexander. The expedition was massive, and whatever the initial cause, its goal soon became the permanent occupation of all of Britannia. The previous high-water mark had been set a century before, by the famous Roman general Agricola. But since then, the frontier had been rolled back all the way to Hadrian's Wall, with even the Antonine Wall long since abandoned. For his base, Severus chose the northern city of Eboricum, 
modern York, the legionary base of the 6th Victorious Legion. While Julia Domna and 19-year-old Geta stayed behind to administer the empire, 20-year-old Caracalla joined his father on campaign. 209 saw the Romans defeat the Caledonians in battle, annex large swaths of territory, and even reach the northern tip of the island. Upon their return to Aboricum, Severus and Caracalla jointly claimed the title of Britannicus. But a glowing success of father-son bonding, it was not. As Dio relates, the two were riding at the head of the army, on their way to negotiate with the Caledonians, when Caracalla drew his sword and prepared to strike his father in the back. Someone shouted, Severus turned, and Caracalla lowered his weapon. The moment passed, but you can kind of picture it lasting forever. What did Severus feel in that moment? Shock and rage, or just disappointment? Or did some small part of him even think his son might be right? That he'd outlived his usefulness? That he was just in the way? After the negotiations, Severus called his son to the mat, basically daring Caracalla to kill him out in the open if that's what he wanted. Caracalla demurred, but still, Severus didn't take his son's life or even his titles. To the contrary, Severus gave Caracalla total control over the next year's campaign meant to suppress ongoing resistance to Roman rule of the north. But at the same time, Severus elevated Geta from Caesar to full Augustus. Having three men of full imperial rank from the same family at the same time was unprecedented. It was likely an admission of failure in Severus's plans for Caracalla and maybe an attempt to protect Geta from his brother by giving him equal powers. Either way, it seems to have been a final bold act before despair and sickness took hold. On February 4th to 11 AD, Septimius Severus died in Aboricum. Julia Domna was likely at his side, and heard him speak his famous exhortation to his sons. Be harmonious, enrich the soldiers, and scorn all other men. Severus was clearly hoping for a jointly ruled empire, on the model of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. But Severus's actions had taught Caracalla two important lessons about power. The first was the need to ruthlessly exterminate all potential rivals. And the second was that brothers had no place in the line of succession.